0: Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives.
1: Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by Behavioral Nudge Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVNH Consulting. And with me is my colleague and friend, Suzanne Kirkendall, CEO of BVNH Consulting in North America. Hi, Suzanne.
0: Hi, Eric. I'm very excited to be joining you for this episode and to be introducing our guest, Nir Iyal. Near writes, consults and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology and business. He previously taught as a lecturer in marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. He is the author of two best-selling books, Hooked: How to Build Habit-Forming Products and Indistractable: How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, named one of the best business and leadership books of the year by Amazon and one of the best personal development books of the year by Audible. In addition to blogging at nearandfar.com and being a frequent speaker at industry conferences and at Fortune 500 companies, Near's writing has been featured in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine, and Psychology Today. Near, welcome to our Be Good podcast.
2: Thanks. It's so great to be with you.
1: Uh, Thanks again, uh, Nir. It's really a pleasure to uh, have you with us uh, uh, today. I would like to uh, start um, to talk a little bit of your background before we jump uh, into your uh, wonderful uh, books. So I think, uh, Nir, you received an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, but can you tell us more about how you came to be interested in psychology and maybe behavioral science uh, at the very beginning?
2: Yeah, so I, I came to this from a very practical uh, path. I had started and then sold a tech company at the intersection of gaming and advertising. And i that's where I had this vantage point to learn a lot about the psychology of product design. Uh, you know, these are two industries that depend upon changing human behavior, gaming and advertising. They don't spend all that money on ads for their health. Uh, games are designed to be engaging. So I had this front row seat uh, in Silicon Valley for how uh, many of these companies that have really changed millions if not billions of users' lives, companies like uh, Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and uh, you know, th- th- these companies that are so good at changing user behavior. And so after my last company was acquired, I thought I was going to start another company. And I had this hypothesis that habits would become increasingly important as the screen real estate shrank. Right? So as we went from desktop screens to laptop screens to mobile device screens to wearable device screens like the Apple Watch, and now you know the screens have disappeared with devices like the Amazon uh, Echo, we don't even have the screen interface anymore. And so I had this idea that that habits would become increasingly important because I saw with many of my clients' customers that uh, if, if somebody didn't put an app on their home screen, the user would forget about it. Might as well not even exist because there just wasn't the real estate to trigger people with what we call external triggers, these notifications, these visual reminders uh, to to get them to change their behavior. And so I knew if I was going to start another company, it had to build habits. And so I looked around and I wanted to find a book on how do you build habit-forming products? And I didn't find such a book. I, I found a lot of amazing research on personal habits, but not much in terms of habits when it comes to changing behavior through the products we use. And so my idea was, well, you know, there's all these companies that are doing such an amazing job of it, what are their secrets? And what can I frankly steal from them so that I can democratize for the rest of us so that uh, people not only, you know, building social media apps and games, I've never worked with those companies. I wanted to work with the companies that were building healthy habits. You know, companies like FitBot that's used uh, the hook model in my work to build a a fitness app to help people build healthy exercise habits. Companies like Kahoot that use the hook model to build uh, a habit around education. Uh, There's companies from every conceivable industry now that are changing consumer behavior for good through the products and services they use. And so that's really the the, the reason that I decided to, to write Hooked and to research this topic.
1: Okay. Okay. That's uh, great and convincing. And maybe uh, when you were working on uh, The first uh, book, you had some mentor or some uh, researcher that you would like uh, to uh, mention, for example, I don't know if it was uh, the case uh, with you, but we have interviewed some months ago, uh, Wendy Wood, uh, who uh, is an expert on habits. Maybe you have some uh, other uh, mentors who have uh, had a, a particular influence on your work and your thinking.
2: Yeah, so probably the the, the biggest uh, influence was uh, Baba Shiv, Dr. Babashiv at uh, Stanford Graduate School of Business, who read my blog post at the time. I was just blogging about what I was learning. I, I had no conception that you could, uh, you know, write books at all. That <laughs> wasn't something I ever considered doing. And then uh, Dr. Baba Shiv at uh, at Stanford um, wrote me an email and said, I, "I I saw your hooked model, and I really like what you're writing about." How about teaching a class together? And so that's where I had the opportunity to be a lecturer at Stanford for um, for quite a while. And then later moved into the Hassel Planner Institute of Design at Stanford. And so Babash's work is, is is pretty foundational. We we taught this class together and uh, he he you know, I always owe him a, a debt of gratitude for giving me that chance. Then I would also say Dr. B.J. Fogg, uh, also at Stanford, uh, who I I I uh, kind of stand on the shoulder of, of of that giant, I guess, in the industry that you could you could say uh, with the Fogg Behavior Model, uh, you know, there's there's uh, that's been a pretty profound impact as well. What I wanted to do was uh, Fogg, I think, really explained in a very uh, intuitive and visual way, uh, in a way that's simple but not simplistic. Singular behaviors, and and there's there's similar models as well. The combi models, I'm sure most of your listeners are are, are familiar with. But uh, what I wanted to do was to expand on that to not only look at singular behaviors, which I think you know COM-B and the behavior fo- the fog behavior model really hit the nail on the head. To expand into repeat habitual behaviors, to 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 go beyond uh, uh, the the j- just that singular interaction into repeat habitual behavior.
0: So Nir, your first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit Pouring Products, was released in 2014 and has had a major influence on product design across lots of different industries. Before we get to the content, I know you mentioned you started this model with blogging. How did you get from blog to book?
2: Very organically, actually. I just started blogging for myself, to be honest. Uh, you know, I, I think that writing is the best thinking tool I know. Uh, It's not easy. (laughs) I had a horrible writing session today that just wasn't flowing out, and sometimes that happens. But uh, when you put in the consistent effort, you know, one of my life mantras now after writing Indistractable, my second book, is consistency over intensity, that if you just do a behavior consistently, you're you're going to 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 uh, deepen your knowledge and hopefully share that with other folks. So what I did was just consistently blog. I just wrote an article uh, consistently and after two years of blogging on a topic that very few people were were uh, dedicating their their time and attention to, turns out you can kind of become an expert <laughs> and especially if no one else is really doing it. And at the time, you know, this was back in 2012, nobody was really looking to uh, habit forming product design and so I kind of had the opportunity to, to carve out a little niche and uh, I started getting emails from people saying hey we you know we like your blog posts. I want to share them with my team but where's where's something I can give them I, I can't print out you know hundreds of articles where's the book I said okay let me let me take a few months and I'll put together a book and I'll, I'll take my articles and you know maybe there'll be 20 30 pages that I can give you for free in a PDF Well, once i started uh putting two two years of blog posts together uh it wasn't a 20 page book it was a 300 page book (laughs) and so uh, that became what i published uh, as hooked and i originally self-published i just put it on kdp kindle direct publishing and just hit print and you know it was up for sale on amazon And then it started getting reviews. And once it hit 100 five-star reviews, I started getting calls from agents and publishers. And I I found a fantastic agent who then sold the book to uh, Penguin. And um, here we are. That was how the first book got published.
1: So congrats, Nir. It was a a nice uh, journey, I would say. Uh, Now we would like to go into the detail of uh, uh, your book and the hook model you mentioned uh, several uh, times. Before we go into the different four steps of the uh, hook model, could you tell us more about the fundamental objective of the hook model?
2: Sure. So the hook model is a design pattern to connect the user's problem with your product with enough frequency to form a habit. And so the idea here is that we can change users' lives for good. We can build these healthy habits by designing a user experience that causes them to go from needing external triggers, external triggers are all the pings, dings, and rings in our outside environment, to eventually creating an association with what's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape from. So one of the fundamental things we need to understand about habits, uh, about all human behavior for uh, for that matter, is that all behaviors, especially when it comes to the products and services we use, we use every product and service for only one reason and one reason only. And that one reason is to modulate our mood. To feel something different and so if you can become the product or service that people turn to out of habit a habit is defined as a be- as an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought if you can be that product or service then you're in an incredibly uh, valuable position right if you can be the thing that people turn to with little or no conscious thought throughout their day to hopefully improve their lives and, ma- and make their their lives better through these the use of these habitual products not only can You benefit the the end user, but you're in a very good place from a business standpoint, because habits are a huge competitive advantage. Uh, Think about Google. right? When I do talks in front of an audience, sometimes I'll demonstrate the power of habits by asking people in the room to raise their hands if they've searched with Google in the past 24 hours. And typically, you'll get almost every hand in the room. Then I say, who has searched with Bing, the number two search engine in the world? Who's searched with Bing in the past 24 hours? Maybe I'll get a former Microsoft employee. will raise their hand. <laughs> very, very few people in the room. Why is that? Is it because Google is so much better than Bing? Actually, no. Third-party studies have found that when you look at the search results head-to-head, side-by-side, and you strip out the branding, it's a 50-50 preference split, meaning people can't tell the difference between the end product. So what's going on? Why does Google have 90% search engine market share? It's because they have a habit right they have a monopoly of the mind it's the first to mind solution we turn to with little or no conscious thought they have built that habit and what happens when you build a habit with a consumer is they don't even give the competition a chance they don't even look to say oh i wonder who has the best search engine we just google it with little or no conscious thought and so if you can be that kind of solution uh, not only to displace your competition but also to displace bad habits Right. If you can change the habit that people have with the way they eat, uh, the the work they do, the people they connect with, if you can change those bad habits that lead to regret and and behaviors we don't appreciate, and you can actually change that into healthy habits, that that's an incredibly wonderful thing we can do for our, our customers as well. So uh, habits are great for the bottom line. They're wonderful for our customers and they erect a huge barrier uh, to entry for your competition.
1: Yeah. OK. Very clear. So uh, uh, if we go into this uh uh, this model, the first uh, step is about trigger. So could you describe uh, a little more this step and tell us how to be successful as a product designer to create powerful triggers.
2: Right? So we have these two kinds of triggers. We have the external triggers. As I mentioned, these are all the things in our outside environment that tell us what to do next. It can be a ping, a ding, a ring, anything in the outside environment that gives us some piece of information for what to do. Uh, Play this, buy now, click here, anything that tells you what to do. Now, those are important, but the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product is to not need those external triggers. Imagine what would happen if your product was used, not because you sent some piece of annoying advertising or spammy messaging, but because people used your product because they wanted to, not because they had to. Just the same way that we you know, check Instagram or our email, uh, we're not re- often even conscious of why we're checking our phones. The average smartphone user checks their home screen 150 times per day. So a very, very high habit-forming potential. And the vast majority of time, we know that studies find 90% of the time we check our phones, it's not because of an external trigger. We think it's because of an external trigger. We think it's because of some beep or buzz or boop. No. 90% 90% of the time, it's because of an, a feeling. It's because of an internal trigger. And so the products that we use uh, habitually satisfy that itch, that internal trigger. So what this means for product designers is and behavioral designers is that you have to, one, figure out what is that internal trigger? What is your customer's frequently occurring internal trigger? And the frequency here is incredibly important. We know that there's a precipitous drop-off in the likelihood of creating a consumer habit if the behavior does not happen within a week's time or less. So very, very important that there's high frequency. The kind of products that don't need the hook model at all are the kind of products you use you know, once a year. Of course, they're in trouble because they have to find other competitive advantages. So you need to find something. Uh, or you can bolt on a habit-forming experience to a product that is not used with sufficient frequency. But you really do want to be in that window of time of, uh, of a week's time or less so that you can attach it to that, the fact that every time the user feels a certain way, boom your product is the solution to that internal trigger so you're the 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 scratch to the user's itch Mm
1: -hmm. do you have some example of what you consider a good external trigger
2: yeah this is a great question so let me uh take a little detour i'll 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 tell you a a quick story that illustrates the point Um, i was on a transcon flight not that long ago and i remember i was sitting in the aisle seat and there was a gentleman across the aisle from me who had he he was clearly sleeping he had his uh blanket up to his chin he had a big pillow under his neck it was very obvious the guy was passed out and the flight attendant comes down the aisle and she looks at him and she says sir and he's obviously asleep he doesn't do anything right so she says it louder she says it again she says sir again nothing now people are starting to notice that she's doing this she says it a third time she says sir he says what 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 is it she says sir what would you like to drink now, this sounds absurd, right? But we do this to our users and customers all the time. We send them external triggers on our schedule with no consideration about when they are feeling the internal trigger to use our product. Did that guy want some, something to drink? Yes, when he was thirsty, not when he was sleeping. So to answer your question, what is the difference between a good external trigger and a bad external trigger? What's the difference between an external trigger that feels like spam and one that feels like magic? The answer is one word, and that one word is context. Context. The more closely together you can couple the internal trigger, the moment in time and place when you feel that discomfort, when you have that emotional itch, and the external trigger the thing that tells you how to resolve that problem the closer together you can couple those two things the more likely the user is to respond which is why it's so important to start with the customer problem you know many companies out there they got something to sell you all right i got a product i got to figure out who needs it no what we really need to do is to start with what is the customer's problem not just on a functional level but on a psychological level right? What is that emotion they seek to modulate? Then we can figure out where in time and place do they feel that discomfort? That's when we send the external trigger, not on our schedule, but on their schedule.
1: Yeah, thanks for the illustration. It is, I think, really a wonderful example to um, understand clearly what you have uh, in mind. So thanks for this. Uh, Second step is action. Again, what do you mean by that and uh, how we could motivate people to take action?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this next step after we've triggered the user is the action. And this is where the habit is manifested. So uh, the idea here is that the behavior, it's the behavior, uh, the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. The easiest thing the user can do to seek relief from that emotional itch. So it can be a click, a scroll, a feed, a play button, the simplest thing the user can do to get relief from that psychological itch. Now, of course, we know, according to Lewin's equation, that that the easier something is to do, the first rule of interaction design, the easier something is to do, the more likely people are to do it. So this is where I, I lean on the work of BJ Fogg with the Fogg Behavior Model, that if we can make sure that the user has sufficient motivation and ability and a clear trigger is present, we're more likely to see that action manifest. So our job as as uh, behavioral designers is to make sure that the user has some level of motivation and then make sure that the, the action is as easy to do, to reduce the friction as much as possible for that intended behavior.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me of the famous mantra by uh, Richard Taylor, make it easy uh, to yeah, take action. Absolutely. So
2: that's... That's exactly where this fits in. So all the stuff about uh, nudges and sludges and friction, that's exactly where this goes into the hook model, into the action phase. By the way, this is where most of the work around heuristics also go. All of that, all these uh, tips and tricks and techniques that we know around things that will make a behavior more likely to occur. By the way, rationally, or as Dan Ariely says, irrationally, anything that makes that behavior more likely to occur, that's into the action phase.
1: And the final step is investment, and uh, when you talk about investment, it has reminded me uh, also uh, what uh, Dan Aureli called the Ikea effect, meaning putting some effort. Could you explain more this investment step?
2: Sure. But there's one we skipped. We skipped the third phase, which is the variable reward phase. So so Ah, let let me talk about that. Sorry, sorry. Yes. No, no problem. No problem. Let me talk about that a little bit, and then I'll I'll get back to the investment phase. So the third step of the hook model after the the action phase is called the variable reward phase. And this is where the hook model is very different from the traditional uh, uh, habit loop that I'm sure everybody's seen before. That's for personal behaviors. But when it comes to product behaviors, what we see time and time again, is that we have to have not only a reward, it's not just about scratching the user's itch. And and when I say reward, it's not something that makes you feel good, but rather something that alleviates the discomfort of wanting. There's an important distinction there. Not only that, it has to be variable. It has to have an element of uncertainty, what we call, uh, behaviorists call, an intermittent reinforcement, which I'm sure you're you're familiar with. This is what makes slot machines enticing. This is what makes sports fun to watch. This is what makes books uh, interesting to read. It's what makes the news new, right? The first three letters of of news, N-E-W. It's about what's new, what's different, what we don't know. And so whether it's scrolling a feed, or checking an app, or looking at a dashboard, fundamentally, every habit-forming product has some element of variability. And I break down these three types of variable rewards as rewards of the tribe, rewards of the hunt, and rewards of the self. And what you will see is that every habit forming, online, offline, enterprise, consumer web, you will always find one or more of these three types of variable rewards.
1: Mm -hmm. And you highlight in uh, this uh, uh, variable reward uh, the dimension variable. Could you elaborate uh, a little on this uh,
2: dimension yeah so this comes from the classic work of bf skinner the father of operant conditioning Uh, he did these famous experiments where he took a pigeon starved the pigeon this is important to know many people don't realize this but when skinner did these experiments he didn't just get the pigeon to respond at any occasion the pigeon had to have that internal trigger of hunger why do i mention this because with us building products and services, this isn't hijacking people's brains. This isn't addiction. This isn't uh, getting people to do things they don't want to do. There has to be a fundamental itch there. There has to be a need that the consumer has before they'll uh, respond to this behavior. So if you don't If you don't scratch that itch, if you don't give the user what they came for, they're going to churn out. They're not going to keep using your product. So back to Skinner. He had these pigeons. As long as they had the internal trigger of hunger, he could give them a little pellet, a little disc to peck at. And every time they pecked at the disc, they would receive a little reward. Great. It's called operant conditioning. No big deal. If you have a pet at home, you've probably trained your pets. If you have a kid at home, you probably trained their behavior the same way, all operant conditioning. But then, of course, Skinner had a problem one day. He walks into the lab and he realizes he doesn't have enough of these food pellets to last him the whole day. So he couldn't afford to give them to the pigeon every time. He could only afford to give it to the pigeon once in a while. And what he found was that if he gave that reward on a variable schedule of reinforcement, the rate of response, the number of times the pigeon pecked at the disc increased When the reward was given on an intermittent schedule of reinforcement and so this is what we see not only with pigeons we see it in human beings right when we are are playing a slot machine when we're uh, scrolling the news when we're checking twitter all of these experiences listening to my voice right now why are you listening to this podcast you're listening to this podcast because you want to know what I'm going to say next, <laughs> it's all about uncertainty, and it's not necessarily. You know, sometimes it gets couched as a as a a, a a tricky technique or a dark pattern. That's not true. It's it's part of the human condition. In fact, in the book uh, Hooked, I talk about the, the kind of the, the a great demonstration of variable rewards and where, why I think we have evolved this uh, the, the, this interesting phenomenon of, of of responding to variable rewards in this way. That uh, we know that persistence hunters till this. Day. People who uh, hunt for food, you know, we have this image that cavemen used to have uh, bows and arrows and they would shoot a bow and arrow from uh, hundreds of yards away and they would, you know, kill kill an animal. That's not how it works. Actually, you have to get very close to an animal to kill it with a bow and arrow. You, you you, know, today you have new technology, but back then you had to get relatively close. So how could you get close enough to an animal to, to kill it? Well, you would have to run it down. And so we know that persistence hunters today, they run after, you know, in the book, I talk about these hunters in South Africa that run after kudu, this this large antelope-like uh, animal. And they run it until exhaustion. Well, how do they do that? They're constantly tracking what's going to happen next, right? That's what keeps them hunting for the kill is what's going to happen. Is the animal going to break left, right, stop, start? What's going to happen? And and human beings, of course, are not the fastest animals far from it, but we're the most persistent right? So no other animal can can run that distance for that long like we can. It's part of the reason we evolved to not have hair like all the other apes. We're, we're pretty hairless apes compared to our, our uh, mammalian uh, ancestors. Uh, and that gives us this advantage of being able to run after a long period of time. But that's on the physical side. On the psychological side, it's this gift of having this penchant for variability, for wanting to know what's going to happen next that keeps us hunting and hunting.
1: Okay, great. So, uh... Uh, trigger, uh, action, variable reward, and uh, investment. So, could you tell us more about investment?
2: Sure. So, this is again a big difference from uh, the model that you might see for personal uh, habits. This is very specific to product habits. The investment phase is where the user puts something into the product to improve it with use, and in the the act increases the likelihood of using the product again in the future so this is a really big deal if you look at the history of manufacturing these cycles to improve a product took a very very long time so henry ford is famous for saying you can have any color of model t as long as it's black Now, why did he say that? Because it was very hard for Henry Ford back then to retool his factory and give you a blue car and you a red car and you a green car. That was really hard work. It took a very long time. Even today, with most physical products, it takes a very, very long time to customize them based on user preferences. Now, that has shortened dramatically for tech products, specifically, anything that has this what i call contingent relationship with the user so what the investment phase of the hook model does is store value in the product so that it appreciates with use in contrast to products that depreciate with wear and tear so if you think about your couch your clothing your car all of these things lose value with wear and tear habit-forming products do the opposite habit-forming products appreciate. They get better and better the more we use them. They store value in the product in the form of data, content, reputation, skill acquisition, followers, any of these forms of investment. By the way, you notice I didn't mention money. Money can be a form of investment, but that's not the best one to use. There're much better forms of investment that you want the user to put effort into the product. You mentioned uh, the IKEA effect. This this comes, you know, goes by a few different names, but the idea here is that when you put effort into a product, when you build IKEA furniture for example, you We know you value it more and so when you see a website or an app that gets you to fill out a profile or customize your your uh, experience in some way or even passively collects data in a way that makes the product better and better where I call this passive uh, investment versus active investment for example if you use Google You are making the product better and better, because the more you search, the more you're customizing your recommendations. And if you don't believe me, go into incognito mode, do the exact same search. Many times, you'll get different search results, because now that it's not personalized. So anywhere where you see these bits of, of work the user does to make the product better and better with use, you are storing value in the product. This, of course, through successive cycles, trigger, action, reward, investment. This is how our preferences are shaped, how our tastes are formed, and how these habits take hold.
1: Great. Uh, There is an obvious uh, question regarding influence, Uh, because using the hook model you have a lot of influence to encourage new uh, habits. So, uh, what is your recommendation for an ethical use of the uh, hook model?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole section in the book called the morality of manipulation, and this was something I, you know, thought about uh, way back in in uh, 2012 when I started working on the book, and 2014 when, when it was eventually published. Uh, before the, the the current, I would call it now. I think the pendulum swung the other way. Now we're in kind of a moral panic about these things that people think that. Uh, technology is hijacking my brain you hear some people saying and I think that's that's ridiculous it's it's uh, hijacking is what they did to us on 9-11 it's not uh, candy crush right that uh, I I can tell you I, I wrote the book on how these products get you hooked and I can tell you these techniques are good They're not that good, (laughs) right? This is not mind control. Uh, You know, it's nobody's getting addicted to enterprise SaaS software, right? I wish we could change behavior so easily. People make it sound like uh, these techniques are so easy. We can manipulate people to do all kinds of things. Well, if that was true, we wouldn't have an obesity epidemic, right? If that was true, we wouldn't have uh, everybody would be exercising with their fitness apps and learning languages every single day. It's hard. Anybody who's built product knows it's difficult to change user behavior. But that being said, there are some products, very small, small proportion of products, right? No, uh, This kind of advice really doesn't apply to the vast majority of your listeners, if you're, you know, helping people exercise more, learn a language or you're building SaaS products for the enterprise, right? Nobody's getting addicted to enterprise SaaS. Uh, it doesn't really apply. You don't have this problem of of overuse. Uh, what you do find is in some industries, you do have a problem of overuse and abuse. And so there's there's a few things. Uh, there's different lenses how uh, in terms of how we can look at the, pro, uh, of the problem. Uh, from w- which one do you want to start with? So we can start with the individual lens. We can start with the company lens or we can start with the governmental lens. It, this, is, By the way, we could do a whole podcast just on this. Is, is one of those particularly interesting for you? Uh, more maybe uh, business side. The business side, sure. So th- that's a great question. So okay, so what do you do if you are at a company and somebody at the company wants to use what we call a dark pattern, one of these these uh, uh, techniques that tricks somebody into doing something they later regret? Which is, by the way, that is the way to tell the difference between the two types of manipulation. Right? Manipulation has a, a, a has a negative connotation, but in fact, manipulation on its own is not positive or uh, negative. It's neutral. But in fact, there are two kinds of manipulation. We have what we call persuasion, which is helping people do things they want to do. Right? You're persuading them to do something they want to do. Then we have, at the other end of the spectrum, we have what's called coercion. Coercion is getting people to do something they did not want to do. And of course, the big difference is one word. That one word is regret. So we never want people to regret using our product. So what I came up with was an ethical test that you can use at your company that is better than anything else I've ever seen. Now, what, what else is out there? I was searching for what ethical test can people use at their company. And so the first uh, ethical test I found was at Google, that Google used to say, they don't anymore by the way, the Google motto used to be, don't be evil. That's not their motto anymore by the way, but it used to be. Don't be evil is not a very good ethical test because what's evil? It's subjective. What's evil to me as the product designer might be different from you, the product user. So I don't think that's a very good test. Then uh, I heard, well, you know, disclosure. We just need to tell people everything. Disclose to them what we're doing and then we'll, we'll, you know, we'll CYA. Well, that's what the lawyers will tell you, but you and I both know nobody reads the terms of service. So, that's really disingenuous. I don't think that's in good faith when you put, you know, crazy terms in your contract. To me, that's not a high enough ethical bar. Then somebody told me, well, just use the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? That seems like a good ethical bar, but even that's not good enough because who says that we as the designer should be the arbiter of what people want done? to them right so that's not a good ethical bar we should actually go above that ethical bar and that ethical bar is to do unto others as they want done to themselves do unto others as they want done to themselves that's how we apply behavioral design ethically well how do you do that near give us the answer right <laughs> how do you practically do that you run what's called a regret test what is a regret test A regret test uses a technique that we've been using for decades in the product design industry and in usability design. Whenever we want to uh, test a certain design pattern, what do we do? We mock it up. We bring in a few customers before we go live to production. We bring in a few potential users. We sit them down. We show them the user flow, and we see how they respond. So the regret test is when we disclose to a small group of people, it can be even 10 people, that we bring into the lab or a usability test and we ask them and we tell them everything that is about to happen. Okay? Whatever technique you're using, what is going to happen when they click on the button you want them to press on? And then we ask them, would you regret doing this behavior? Would you regret doing this behavior knowing everything that you, uh, that I as the designer know? And then we need some kind of bar. What's acceptable for our company? Should it be 5 out of 10 people? Should it be 9 out of 10? Should it be 10 out of 10? We need to decide what we are ethically okay with. I suggest it should be 10 out of 10 just by the, the 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 threat of running a regret test what would that look like you're in a boardroom and somebody says you know what we should do this and that kind of looks like a roach motel or we should do that but that looks like bait and switch or whatever dark pattern is is a is a sketchy technique we we don't want to you know you have reservations about you raise your hand you say you know what before we potentially get in trouble on social media for doing something like that i have reservations why don't we just run a regret test And you know what, if nine out of 10, 10 out of 10 people don't regret the action, let's do it. Just the threat of running such a regret test has an amazing chilling effect. That nine times out of 10 people say, you know what, probably a bad idea, we can probably do better than that. Let's try something else. So that's that's how we ethically do it in the enterprise. We use this regret test. Now, of course, there's a different lens for the individual and there's a different lens from a government regulation perspective, but that's a longer conversation.
1: Okay, okay. And we would like to talk about Indistractable. So maybe, Suzanne, I know that you have a lot of questions. And thanks again for Hooked. It was really uh, uh, amazing and insightful.
0: Yes, absolutely. So many questions. So little time. So your second book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Hooked is about help building habit-forming products. Indistractable is about not getting distracted. Can you explain the link between these
2: two books? Sure. So Hooked is about building good habits with the technologies uh, that we use. And it's, it's marketed to product designers and builders. Indistractable is about how do we break the bad habits. Uh, now, the, the good news is we can have our cake and eat it, too it's not a negation. It's not hooked and unhooked because I didn't want to negate what I wrote in hooked. I believe we can have them both. How can that be? Well, we can use the kind of products that help us build good habits in our lives with the hook model built in, right? As I mentioned a few times now, you know, helping us exercise and eat right and uh, learn new languages, etc. cetera. All the amazing things that good habit forming products can do. But we can also break the bad habits to different products. It's not the same products, right? We want to form the habits with the exercise app and the app that makes us more productive at work. And we want to break the bad habits around email and social media and uh, watching too much TV and eating too many potato chips and smoking too many cigarettes and drinking too much booze. All the things that we later regret using for one reason or another. How can we avoid distraction? And So Indistractable was written really for me. I told you earlier how I wrote Hooked because I wanted to build habit forming products. I wrote Indistractable because I kept getting distracted.
0: Fair enough. I think pretty much everyone can relate to that, especially in our very digital world these days. So, you know, in your book, you talk about how living the life we want requires not only doing the right things, it also requires that we stop doing the wrong things that take us off track. So how come if we really want to do the right things, we really want to exercise, eat healthy, learn the language, how does distraction happen and lead us away from our goals?
2: Yeah, this is uh, this is a question for the ages, literally. I mean, uh, we know that Plato, the Greek philosopher, asked this very same question. He called it akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interests. So we know that people have been distracted for at least the past 2,500 years. Uh, even though we like to think that oh, it's our technology that's distracting us. It's Facebook. It's the news. It's Twitter. In fact, people have always and will always be distracted unless they take steps to prevent distraction. So let, let's start with what is distraction. It's, it's a term that I thought I understood, but really when I started looking into the research, I, I didn't really get it. So the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. What is the antonym? What is the opposite of distraction? Most people will tell you, obviously, right? The opposite of distraction is focus. I don't wanna be distracted, I wanna be focused, right? Not exactly. If you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Traction and distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. Reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us, it is an action we ourselves take. So traction by definition is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do. Things that move you closer to your values, help you become the kind of person you wanna become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction, distraction is any action that pulls you away from your goals, away from your values, away from becoming the kind of person you wanna become. The difference between traction and distraction is intent. Okay, as Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So when I was researching, how can I become indistractable? I, you know, I wanted this ability. I I, I realized that you know that the problem that that I had and most of us have is not that we don't know what to do. We, we all know what to do. Who doesn't know that if you want to be in good shape, you have to eat right and exercise? Who doesn't know that if you want good relationships, you have to put in the work and have those difficult conversations and be fully present with people? We know. Who doesn't know that if you want to be better at your job, you have to do the hard work that other people don't want to do consistently over a long period of time? We know this. We already know. And if you don't know, frankly, Google it, right? All the answers are right there. The problem is we don't know how to get out of our own way. That's the real problem, distraction. So what what I found was that... If you decide that you want to do a particular behavior, anything you want to do, do it, have fun, enjoy it, but do it on your schedule and according to your value. So we need to stop moralizing and medicalizing. This is what I think a lot of other books in this field tell you. Well, stop using your computer, stop using social media, stop using email. This is the kind of advice that only, you know, uh, professors who have tenure will give you you can't the average person can't do that right like we want to keep track of where are our kids and what do i need to do for work we'll get fired if we don't use these devices and there's nothing wrong with it we need to stop moralizing and medicalizing and realizing that if you want to do these behaviors do it but do it when you say you will now it becomes an act of traction conversely what i found was in my research for five years that it took me to write this book by the way because i was so distracted until i figured out these techniques today i'm indistractable but but what I found was that the greatest sources of distraction weren't the usual suspects. It wasn't Facebook and Instagram. It, that wasn't the source of, of most distractions. The biggest sources of distraction were the things people didn't realize were distracting them. What does that look like? Well, I'll give you what my days used to look like before I, I, I wrote Indistractable. I would come into work, I would sit down, I would look at my to-do list. By the way, we can talk about why Using to-do lists is one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. We can talk about that in a minute. I would look at my to-do list and I'd see at the top of the to-do list that big important project that I've been delaying, that I've been procrastinating, and I would say, okay, I'm not going to delay anymore. I'm not going to procrastinate. Here I go. I'm going to get started right now. That's what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to get started. Nothing's in my way. I'm not going to get distracted. But first, let me check some email. Right? How often does that happen to us? All the time. Let, let me do that thing on my to-do list, the easy stuff first, just to you know get some momentum going. I can just you know crank out a few of these things. And what I didn't realize is that that is the most dangerous, that is the most pernicious form of distraction because it tricks you into prioritizing the easy and the urgent work at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your life and career forward. So just because something is a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. In fact, that's the worst kind of distraction because you don't even realize you're distracted. So if you're checking email, when you said you were gonna work on that big project, even if it's a work email, it's still a distraction. That's the most terrible kind of distraction. So now we have traction, an arrow to the right. We have distraction, an arrow to the left. Now imagine two arrows bisecting, pointing to the center of those two arrows. These represent our triggers, back to what we talked about in Hooked. Here they are again external triggers and internal triggers. So external triggers, again, are these things in our outside environment. But what we find in studies that only 10% of the time we get distracted is it because of an external triggers. Uh, The other 90% are because of these internal triggers. So that becomes our first step to becoming indistractable. So the indistractable model starts with step number one, master the internal triggers. If we don't understand why we get distracted that the ultimate source of distraction by and large 90 percent of the time is an uncomfortable emotional state we'll always get distracted by something just as plato did 2500 years ago if we don't understand that it's discomfort whether it's too much news too much booze too much football too much facebook we are always going to get distracted unless we deal with the discomfort the internal trigger the loneliness the boredom the uncertainty the uh fearfulness the stress the anxiety if we don't know what to do in response to that distract that those internal triggers we're always going to get distracted from something or another. So that's step number one. Master the internal triggers or they will become your master. Step number two, back to traction. How the, the the rule here is making time for traction by turning our values into time. Step number three is hacking back those external triggers. Even though they only account for 10% of our distractions with our phone, they can be all over the place when it comes to distractions like uh, in the office. You know, We know that surveys find that the number one distraction in the modern workplace is not... Technology, it's other people. And especially now that many of us work from home, it's still other people, it's our spouse, it's our roommate, it's our kids, (laughs) it's our pets. All these things can be potential external triggers that lead towards distraction. And then step number four, preventing distraction with pacts. This is where we use what's called a pre-commitment device to make sure that when all else fails, we have this firewall against distraction. And it's these four techniques, I'm giving you the 30,000 foot overview here, of course we can go into more depth, it's by using these four techniques in concert that anyone can become indistractable.
0: So you mentioned your day at work used to start with a to-do list, but checking email first. What does it look like now that you're indistractable?
2: Yeah. OK, so let's talk about to-do list, because I think that's kind of part of the orthodoxy that we all just accepted without actually looking at the research. And when, you know, everything I do is very research based. I, I, I hate these books that. You know, somebody says, hey, I have an idea, and it worked for me, so it'll work for you. Like, that, that's very nice, it's anecdotal, but I wanna see the study, okay? I wanna see the peer-reviewed research. And it turns out that one of the most studied techniques out there, literally thousands of peer-reviewed studies show that using this simple technique called setting an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it, is incredibly effective. In contrast to the to-do list. The to-do list, the problem with the to-do list it, the way most people use it is that the, whatever thoughts they have uh, things they need to get done they put on their to-do list and because to-do lists have no constraints they never need to prioritize just add more to it okay there's no limit just go on and on and on whereas using what's called a time box calendar saying look we all have the same 24 hours in a day and time boxing every minute of your day with what it is you want to do now you don't have to time box every single little minute but you can do it in 15 minute I tend to do it in 20 or uh, 30 minute increments by knowing what you will do with your time now you can do something that that to-do list can't do which is you finally can understand what is distraction with a to-do list to do list don't tell you what's distraction why because the only way you can say you got distracted is if you can tell me what you got distracted from say it again you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from so if your calendar is blank for that period of time you didn't get distracted because what did you get distracted from nothing (laughs) so don't be surprised so you have to plan out your time so that you can say okay everything on my calendar that i said i was going to do is traction everything else even that work project is a distraction. You have to plan that time in advance. So uh, there's many other problems with with to-do lists as well. One of the biggest problems is that there's no learning mechanism that when you, by the way, just to clarify here, little asterisks, I'm not saying that writing things down on a piece of paper or in an app, getting them out of your brain is not a good idea. That's a very good idea. But most people stop there. You have to put it in your calendar or you fail. It won't work. And here's why it fails. We know we have what's called the planning fallacy. And we know research finds that on average, people will take three times longer to finish a task than they estimate. Why does that happen? Because to-do lists have no feedback right? So you, what people with the to-do list do, and by the way, I used to do this. I'm patient zero here. I used to do this all the time. I would work on something. I'd say, okay, here's that thing on the to-do list. By the way, I would always pick the easiest thing, the fun thing, not the hard thing, right? Because I just got to get through the to-do list. And I would measure myself by these cute little boxes I would check off. And I would say, okay, well, I'm going to work on that for a few minutes. And I'd start working away. And then five minutes later, oh, this is this is hard. Let me just check email for a few minutes, making sure there's no fires going on. Or, or let me work on that other, other project for a few minutes. And this this task switching meant that I could never fully focus on that on that one task. So I never knew how long things took me to finish. So what I want people to consider doing is instead of measuring your, yourself and your productivity by how many cute little boxes you check off, rather measure yourself by one thing and one thing only. And that is, did you do what you said you were going to do for as long as you said you would without distraction? Notice I did not say did you finish. I don't want you to care if you finish. I just want you to promise yourself that you will measure yourself by your ability to do what you said you were going to do in advance without distraction and here's the kicker people who use that technique people who simply measure themselves by that one metric of did I do what I say I was going to do without distraction for as long as I said I would finish more They actually get more done than the to-do list devotees, because now there's a feedback loop. I can say, okay, I worked on this task without distraction, did nothing else for 20 minutes. And in 20 minutes, I got done about 10% of the task. Great. Now I know it's going to take me 10 times the 20 minutes to finish the task completely. A to-do list can never do that for you. So again, there's nothing wrong with writing things down, but make sure you also turn those tasks into time. It has to be on your calendar, or else you don't know the difference between traction and distraction.
0: Amazing. So you just have to get around the plan- planning fallacy of how much time to block on your calendar accurately, right? Um, but that's that's a learning mechanism.
2: Yeah, and, and it's it's an iterative process, right? You're never going to get it right the first time. So the right perspective is not, oh, I'm a drill sergeant and it has to be done this way every time. No, no, no. The right attitude is a scientist. What does a scientist do? Scientist makes a hypothesis, runs an experiment, looks at the results, and then runs another experiment. So every week you're going to put time in your calendar. This is what I do. I've I've done it for years now since I wrote Indistractable. Every Sunday evening, 8 p.m., I sit down, I look at my calendar for the week ahead, and I try and figure out how do I make it easier to stick to my calendar. Now, I will get distracted from time to time. Everybody will, right? That's part of being indistractable, is that you do get distracted from time to time. The difference is that an indistractable person knows why they got distracted so they can do something about it in the future. And part of doing something in the future is looking at your calendar and saying, oh, you know what? I didn't really like you know, the, doing this task in the morning. I should probably move it in the evening, or I don't like that 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 you know that I have that this meeting coming up, so I wanna make sure I have time for my family. So you're learning in this process. You're iterating through this process. Whereas an indis- uh, sorry a distractible person keeps getting distracted by the same things day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. So as Puello Coelho said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So if you keep getting distracted by the same things, right? Darn it. How long can we yell at the TV and at social media before we say enough? <laughs> okay, I'm going to learn from it and make sure that I take steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow.
0: Amazing. So I've got one more question before I hand back to Eric to wrap up. So, you know, a lot of our listeners and our clients are folks who are leaders in organizations. So I'm sure they're all very curious to know what advice you would have for them to make their organization indistractable as opposed to just them as individuals.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I made a mistake, I think, when I wrote Indistractable because I put my favorite two chapters towards the end of the book. Uh, And my favorite two chapters are the one on how to build an indistractable workplace and how to raise indistractable kids. I think those are the two most important. But the reason I put them at the end of the book is because you kind of have to understand the model in order to understand how to apply it. But these are are areas where uh, action on your own fails in fact that there's only so much you can do if you're indistractable but you work at a a, an employer that uh demands that constant interruption (laughs) right what do you do you're indistractable but what do you do if your boss keeps calling you at 9 p.m a night every night and interrupts your your time for yourself so there's a few things you could do one is that you can do what's called a schedule sync a schedule sync once you have that time box calendar you have an artifact. You have something that you can use you can show to your boss and say hey here is my schedule for the week ahead right sit down with your boss ask them for 15 minutes on a monday morning say okay can i sit down with you here's my schedule for the week ahead okay here's the meeting you asked me to go to here's this project a i'm working on project b time for email here's my schedule for the week ahead for, from working hours now you see this other list i have here you see this piece of paper i wrote all the things that i didn't know how to prioritize in my schedule can you help me prioritize if you do this folks listen your boss will worship the ground you walk on because i'm telling you every manager wonders what the heck are my people doing okay even if they totally trust you they don't want to micromanage you they want to know what you're up to so if you proactively manage your manager What you are doing is showing them what you're working on and you're letting them do their job, which is to help you reprioritize by saying, hey, you know what? That thing on that list of paper that you got there, that piece of paper, that's actually more important than that meeting. You can skip the meeting, but work on that. That's super important. Okay, great. Now they're helping you become more efficient. You're also showing them what time you will not be available. So many people... Their entire day is taken up with what we call reactive work, reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to phone calls, all day long, reacting to things that they have no time for what's called reflective work. And what we find is that low performers, they actually habituate themselves to only doing reactive work. Why? Because reactive work tells you what to do. I don't have to think. I don't have to prioritize. Just do what's in my inbox. Do what my boss tells me. Uh, Do what meeting I need to go to. Just do what's, do it right? As opposed to high performers, they make time to reflect. They make time to work without distraction. Creativity, problem solving, planning, thinking requires you to work without distraction. So you have to have some time in your day for reflective work or you're going to run real fast in the wrong direction. So that has to be on your schedule as well. So doing that schedule sync with your boss helps them understand, okay, from this hour to this hour, you're not to be disturbed because you need to think for (laughs) for a bit. Uh, So that's what you can do individually. Now, uh, I'll give you very quick, I'll try and summarize. There's a lot that you can do as a manager to build an indistractable workplace. So I profile several companies. I profile Boston Consulting Group. I profile Slack on how these companies build an indistractable workplace. So I'll, I'll, I'll get to the punchline. Basically, they have three traits of an indistractable company. Number one, they give people the psychological safety to talk about this problem. Meaning, if you can't talk about distraction at work, the problem is you can't talk about the problem of distraction at work. That's the problem that you don't have the psychological safety to raise your hand and say, I can't do my best work when you constantly interrupt me every 30 seconds. It's a psychological safety problem. So number one, this is the work of Amy Edmondson at Harvard. You have to give employees psychological safety to talk about the problem. Number two, you give them a forum. You give them a place to talk about the problem. I tell you exactly how to do that as well. Number three and the most important trait is that management exemplifies what it means to be indistractable. You can't get your employees to focus when you're, as the big boss, constantly checking your device, showing everybody how important you are. Okay, it's the same for parents. I see this all the time with parents and come to me and say, oh, video games are so distracting and they're hijacking our kids' brains. I can't get my kids to do anything. And as they're telling me this, they're checking Facebook. Come on. Culture flows downhill. You have to exemplify what it means to be indistractable in order to raise indistractable kids or to have indistractable employees. At Slack, it's interesting. When you walk into Slack company headquarters, there's a big sign in neon letters that says, work hard and go home. Because everybody from Stuart Butterfield, the CEO on down, believes that to do our best work, we need to work with that distraction. And you would think, you know, this is a, 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 a fast charging Silicon Valley tech company. They should be the most distracted people on earth because nobody uses Slack more than Slack. But that's not true. It's not the technology. It's the company culture because distraction at work is a symptom of cultural dysfunction.
1: Oh, that's really uh, very insightful. Near, unfortunately, we are uh, close to the end of our uh, conversation, so I'd like to say a big thank you. But a final uh, question: uh, Do you have specific areas of uh, interest right now?
2: uh so it takes me about five years to write a book so i've uh, the my problem is and, and i always write books based on the problems that i have right i wrote Hook because i needed to i wanted to learn how to build habit forming products i wrote indistractable because i wanted to overcome my own problem with distraction thankfully i've, I've succeeded at that um so uh, i always write books based on my problems thankfully i've got lots of things i can fix about myself so there's no uh, shortage of problems so my my uh what i'm doing right now is really digging through what what which problem i want to tackle next that another book hasn't already done. That's a challenging prospect because look, there's so many great resources out there. Um, So it's, it's pretty rare that I can find a topic that I read up on, doesn't solve my problem. And I find, you know, I got to dive into the original research here for myself and figure out how to solve this. So I wish I could give you a, a topic. If any of your listeners want to want to email me and let me know of a topic or a struggle that they're dealing with that they find that other books don't properly address, I'm all ears. Uh, my uh, website is nearandfar.com. It's spelled N-I-R, like my first name, N-I-R and far.com. And uh, would love to hear your feedback uh, on, on anything, you know, that you might be struggling as well
1: thanks a lot near
2: my pleasure
0: be good a podcast by the b v a nudge unit